I'm here with Dr. Peter Matus, a senior lecturer in the School of Civil Engineering and Associate Dean for Indigenous Strategy and Services in the Faculty of Engineering. Peter is speaking at our annual ASEAN Forum, which this year will focus on ASEAN and the digital revolution. The forum will look at the key technical innovations and developments taking place in ASEAN countries and the social impact of the digital revolution. Peter is part of the final and possibly the most important panel of the day. What and who is being left behind? So Peter, I'd like to ask you some questions about this issue of the digital divide and the rising inequality that we're seeing in the digital world. Your research looks at how social networks affect people's access to resources such as clean drinking water. So what role do social networks play in contexts like this with less efficient institutions and infrastructure? Social networks are expected to play a stronger role in contexts where institutions or the government or official programs do not provide, where people don't have access to basic infrastructure, they need to ask friends, then they need to go through their acquaintances. And so social networks can have a life essential role for their well-being and sometimes even for survival. Social networks are of course important in every context. In Sydney, in our lives, we use social networks to get ahead in our careers, but we don't need social networks to get uh, water to drink or we don't need social networks to find out what to do with our crop because we get information from other sources as well. But in contexts where this alternative is not available, social networks are sometimes the only way how to get important information. And so whereabouts in Southeast Asia do you do your research in terms of these social networks? I've worked in a couple of countries. I, uh, the, the first one was the Philippines, uh, then Vietnam, and now my main case is in Indonesia. I'm working with an organization called Swiss Contact. We're gathering data from tens of thousands of farmers, so it's, it's a survey at unprecedented scale where their employees go to hundreds of villages and uh, try to find out how people are connected to each other and who talks to whom. How do you do that research when you're collecting data, qualitative data, from tens of thousands of farmers? Most of our research is survey-based, so it's very labour-intensive. But there is something that you can get from surveys that you cannot get from automatically generated information that we are now swamped with. Of course, uh, every day on the internet, everyone leaves a lot of trace. Even the farmers in developing countries, everyone has a phone. So there is a lot of data that can be automatically collected. But what we're interested in is also in the users' interpretations of uh, what matters to them and their perceptions of the importance of uh, different uh, channels of communication and different sources of information within their social network. And therefore, surveys are important for us. And the way how to go to large scale while gathering data face to face is that we attach these type of surveys to other surveys that are already being conducted. Farmers are used to being subjected to numerous surveys about uh, their practices and the technologies that they use. And so this is just one additional component in the end, which they usually find more enjoyable than others because they talk about people that uh, they like and that they socialize with. So this part is usually livelier than other parts of the survey. Okay, so you've you've sort of hinted at this, but there seems to be an interplay between social networks and organizational networks and the environment. 
to what extent is technology part of these networks? And I'm interested both um, in terms of how you develop your code and conduct your analysis and also in terms of how technologies are used by these communities. Yeah, so that is actually one of the main research questions that, that we started with. We wanted to know how technologies may be impacting the social networks of the local communities, but also what role do local social networks play in diffusion of new technologies? So the relationship goes in, in both directions. The pre-existing social networks may determine success of technological projects in remote communities and uh, communities in, in countries of Southeast Asia, but also these technologies may be influencing the, the structure of the social networks there. We've been particularly interested in remote communities because uh, there was high expectation that new information communication technologies that are diffusing very rapidly or have diffused very rapidly to the most remote corners of Southeast Asia, that they would play most significant role in communities that are most disconnected, most remote. And there have been some previous reports of farmers contacting markets through new mobile phones and all of that. And so we wanted to see what role do information communication technologies play in a context like that. But what we have found out is that there seems to be, instead of substitution, what we expected or what, what has been reported very enthusiastically in literature before is that there would be a substitution effect. So are your research findings bearing this out, your hypothesis that um, these remote parts of Southeast Asia mm. would use digital or ICT technologies um, as a substitute, are your research findings bearing that out? No, it seems to be the opposite case. It seems to be the case for complementarity, that uh, if you have more of one type of infrastructure, the new digital technologies reinforce the benefits from that, for example, from transportation technologies. But if you don't have that, phones do not seem to substitute for that, or at least not in the data that we have got so far. So what we see that the people who are more mobile more physically mobile, have more extensive social networks to begin with, they benefit more from new di digital technology to maintain and further expand the network. But uh, for people who are really most isolated, most disconnected in the most remote areas, without any transportation infrastructure, without uh, the right access to institutions, they do not use the new digital technologies in a way that would uh, facilitate further access. They do not use mobile phones to call people that they don't know. There is very strong tradition, at least we can see this clearly in, in Indonesia, but it's probably not just the case of Indonesia, that people like to meet face to face. So even people who have mobile phones, they don't call people that they don't know. They have explained to us a number of times, it just feels too cold, it feels too impolite just to ring someone and ask for something if I don't know them. And so the people who don't know many people then do not benefit much from mobile phones. And it is probably not just Indonesia. It seems to be uh, something that is really in, in human nature, the, the need to face-to-face -face contact. And uh, in some contexts, it manifests itself uh, much more obviously, like we see in the remote communities in Southeast Asia. I think when you put it like that, it seemed absolutely obvious that, of course, yeah. people don't like calling people that they don't know. Yeah. But is that in contrast to what the literature has been telling us? Yeah, I know that if you put it like that, it sounds like, duh, did you have to really <laughs> research that? But if you read any report on mobile phones, uh, 
in the stream of uh, ICT for development literature, you wouldn't have thought so. It seems like, yes, mobile phones, you know, they, they, they will provide access to this, access to that. But then if you think about it, it's like, yeah, if you don't know people, you have no one to call. Mm. In this way, the technology is exacerbating those inequalities rather than supplementing them or substituting it, for them. It seems to be the case, as it's often the case with, with, with new technology. Right. Okay, well, I, I want to come back to that, but could you just tell me how um, you use technology to do your research in terms of the coding and the analysis? So technology comes at several parts. One part is that, yes, we analyze quite large-scale data. So I have myself some background in, in data analysis, and so we use uh, quite sophisticated modeling to try to find out who is central in the social networks, what are the communities, the, the cliques of higher density in, in, in networks, and we model the evolution. All social networks are dynamic, people change who they talk to, and so it's really interesting to, to see how things evolve, and with technology and with other external and internal impacts affecting the networks, it's interesting to see what precedes what, and to try to unpack the causality. So if we want to achieve some desired outcomes, try to help local people achieve uh, whatever their desired outcomes are. It's good to understand the causal mechanisms between networks and their causes and their consequences. And, and for that mm-hmm. longitudinal med- modeling, which requires uh, sometimes quite a lot of computation power, is, is uh, very useful. So you must work quite closely um, within engineering, but also with digital agriculture scholars? So my background is in engineering and I'm uh, affiliated in the Faculty of Engineering, but uh, we have uh, grants through SIAC with uh, scholars from uh, the the Faculty of Science who are experts in agriculture. We we come from, from different angles to the same problem. Obviously the problems do not come packaged. Uh, in the way we decided to establish our faculties in, in the mi- Middle Ages and <laughs> the universities. So yeah, it's absolutely necessary to work with people from other fields. There are context experts and there are method experts and, and there are technology experts and everyone coming together. Mm, which is um, something that we're really focused on at SEAC is this interdisciplinary approach to big problems. Um, So I'd like to come back to this question of digital inequality or inequality, I I suppose. So who is being left behind? I think you've touched on it already, but within the context of this digital innovation, who is being left behind and what are the consequences? So in, in the field of network science or social network research, we see this very often. It seems to be almost a typical human or societal tendency that, uh, People who have better social networks, their, their networks tend to improve. Sociologists use the term for the Matthew effect, which comes from, from Bible Matthew, those who have shall be given. And so we, we see that typically there are endogenous network mechanisms, or there, there are ways in networks tend to evolve by, by itself. And so if you, if you leave things to natural flows, you will see that typically the people who are more central in networks tend to become more and more central. The people who are on the margin of networks tend to become uh, more marginalized. And digital technology, which enables faster communication, may speed up this process. You have uh, people who have better links and their links become even better. So it reinforces these sort of natural network mechanisms that 
are already at play. So that seemed to be the case, what, what we're seeing. That in, in, in our case, in our research, it's not about the digital divide that some people get a mobile phone and some people don't. It's about everyone getting a mobile phone, everyone knowing how to use a mobile phone, but because of the pre-existing social structures and power structures, some people can get more out of it than, than others. Mm. So are you looking at ways that this, these connections can be distributed more equitably? Is there a way of doing that? Well, I, I wouldn't try to play the hand of God of, of really uh, distributing connections equitably or, or trying to manipulate too much uh, the, the social networks that are in place. But what I'm more interested in is uh, conducting programs that do not exacerbate the, the situation even more. Mm-hmm. And what I have seen so far, in both in practice and in academic literature, reviewing papers, I, I receive now quite a lot of papers that try to look at social networks of farmers. In maybe majority of cases, the authors come up with conclusion and therefore we should target these most central individuals for training because they are influential in their communities. Mm-hmm. What annoys me about that is that always, why is the conclusion that because these people are better off, we should be using these people, giving them more free stuff, giving them more new technologies because they are the most influential. It doesn't have to be like that. If you target development programs through people who are not the most central in their networks, they may become more central because then they are the ones who have the new technologies and others don't. They are the ones who have the new varieties of seeds and so others come to them for information. But what seemed to be the the usual case and usually also the case for justifying doing social network research and applying findings of social networks research is uh, the typical let's find out who are the most influential people and give them more stuff. I don't think that's necessary. Well, I look forward to hearing some of your exciting conclusions as your research progresses. Thank you for joining us today, Peter. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.